Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Again, I am glad that you could join us today as we delve into God's Word and we seek to truly understand it, to grasp hold of the meaning that it has for us and what the Lord is speaking to us, that we may follow Him with our lives more effectively. So I welcome you as part of this study. We're continuing our journey through the book of Revelation. In fact, today we will be looking at the 15th chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, I realize this is a short chapter. It's kind of a transition chapter uh, into the next phase we're going to be looking at, but still worth study and glad you could join us for it. Let's turn to the Lord as we prepare our hearts to study his word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn our hearts and our attention to your word again, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice speaking through your word. Father, we know that your word is powerful, that your word convicts us, that your word changes us and challenges us and draws us forward in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see a heart that is responsive to the promptings of your spirit, that we may study your word and know what we are studying, to hear the commands and the call that is placed on us from your word, and that we may be faithful in our handling of it and our teaching of it to others. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study, the opportunity to hear your voice, calling to our lives. Now, Lord, guide us as we study this passage today. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, as we begin to turn our attention to chapter 15, let me do some background. I need to uh, kind of recap the flow of things that have brought us up to this chapter. Now, if you're joining us for the first time in our study of Revelation, I encourage you, go back to chapter one. Don't dive in at chapter 15. You are missing so much of the framework and background understanding that you need by this point. So please don't just dive in here, back it up. Now, for those that have been with us in this journey, uh, let me recap just a little bit. We had the the letters to the seven churches, the circulatory letter, and actually the rest of the book of Revelation is part of that intended circulatory letter to go among the churches. Uh, we have that presentation of the throne room of God and what's going on there when John's given this vision. Then we go into a series of events or judgments being proclaimed. And the way I understand this text and the scholars that I'm following with it uh, present it this way. You've got first off the seven seals. Then you've got the seven trumpets. Between trumpet six and seven, you have the seven signs or symbols. And then you round it out with the seven bowls or bowls of wrath, if you will. And Really, the, these all, as I understand it, kind of fit together, not as a sequential flow of events that it's it's seven, then seven, then seven, then seven, but they actually fit within each other. That the first, the seven seals, gives a description of God's work and his judgment on the earth and the opportunity for them to repent, and then the ultimate judgment of those that do not turn to the Lamb for salvation. That's the seven seals. 
then the seven trumpets are in essence a restating from a slightly different perspective or with a different flavor still that process of God's wrath, opportunity for repentance, and then final judgment. So it's the same story told from two different perspectives at that point. But between Trumpet 6 and 7, we have this kind of interlude where we have the two witnesses that appear, and we've got the, the you know, we got the animal beast thing from Daniel, and and all that all come into play there. And we got to say, okay, where does that all fit? Where do those, um, those things happen? If we look at the next set of chapters, chapters 12 through 14, it talks about the seven signs. Those seven signs all are a breakout explanation of what happens between trumpet six and seven. Okay. So it really, um, really lays out and pulls apart what happens in there and gives us a full understanding of what's taking place there. Then we get back into the flow of things. So there's basically three retellings of that final um, judgment, call to repentance, and then ultimate judgment on the unrepentant. You have the seven seals that take place in chapter six through eight, the first part of eight. You have the seven trumpets, which takes place chapter 8 through chapter 11. Then in 12 through 14, you have a breakout section that explains more about what went on in chapters 10 and 11 with the, the two witnesses and, and the scroll, the, the lamb scroll that is given to John to eat. It's unpacking the idea of what that scroll contained. That's 12 through 14. We just finished that. Now we're back into the third telling of that divine drama of God's uh, judgment upon the earth, the opportunity for repentance, and the final judgment on those that do not repent. So we're seeing that cycle or that, that story being retold from differing perspectives, not to diminish the event. The event's tremendous, but we're getting the idea of what's happening fleshed out a little more as it's told the different context. And John is using, and God is using in this vision he gives to John, is using Old Testament motifs for this. I, the first one we had, we had the four horsemen out of Zechariah in uh, that was with the seven seals. With the seven trumpets, we have the plagues, and really the plagues dominate the narrative after this. Uh, but the seven trumpets are are used in a plague metaphor type of structure. Then you get into the seven bowls of wrath, and they again reflect the plagues in Egypt as a, a framework for understanding them. But each one of them gives a little bit different insight or a little more depth to the image that we are seeing develop here. That's my understanding of really chapters six through the end of 16, which we won't get to 16 today, but that's what's going on. I, I understand this to be this retelling from three different perspectives with 12 through 14, the seven signs being an unpacking of that scroll that John was given to eat. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Go back and cover 8 through 11 again, and you'll get there. 
that all sets the stage for this final summation that we'll see in 17 through the end. And there's a lot to deal with there in that final summation. We're not going to borrow from that yet. We'll get there. But today we're going to concern ourselves with 15. 15 is really setting the stage for dealing with these seven bowls of wrath. We're going to talk about what the, um, the bowls represent a little bit, and we're going to talk about uh, where they're coming from. What's the significance of them? Because again, this is a retelling of God judging the earth, uh, the people of the earth about an opportunity for, for repentance, an opportunity to respond to the lamb and reject the beast. And then it concludes again with the seventh bowl leading us to, to that divine judgment upon the earth, that great and terrible day of the Lord. So six, uh, 15, let's really try to chew into chapter 15. It's only, what, eight verses? So it's not a long chapter, and it is a transition chapter, but it sets the stage for this final aspect of this drama that we are seeing play out. And I, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. There, there is a certain flair of drama in the tellings of these accounts. Uh, the imagery definitely is, is overwhelming at points. So let's turn our attention to chapter 15. In chapter 15 of Revelation, it says this, then I saw in heaven, of course, this is John talking of the vision that he's receiving. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which bring God's wrath to completion. So saying this is going to be it. This is this concludes this cycle. Um, I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. And on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them. And they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, I don't know if you caught it, there is a whole lot going on in three verses here. Uh, really, in two. One sets the stage. He's a vision in heaven, the, the angels with, the, with the, the seven last plagues. But then he starts describing what he said. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. Now, um, that imagery of the glass sea is an imagery that instills peace, an imagery that, that speaks of a, of a purity and a calmness, and yet mixed with fire. How do you have glass mixed with fire, but it's a still sea? I don't, you know, these are images representing things. The glass representing purity and peace, the fire representing torment, struggle, refining, these believers did not reach their eternal reward with God by facing no hardship. 
These are believers that have come through persecution. They have been, you might say, refined by fire. There has been hardship, torment, persecution um, in their lives as part of their faith. And yet, having come through that, they have still reached that point of purity and peace. And that's the imagery contained there with the sub. Sea of glass and fire. So the 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 fire there is is more of a refining, if you will, in faith. And it goes on, it says, On it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. So those that had sided with God against this false prophet and the power of Satan and the beast. And again, we can go back previous chapters and un for what that means, really look into it. What is the number of the beast, the mark of the beast, all of these type of things. Um, big spoiler, if you didn't go back and listen to the rest of it, like I suggested you do earlier, it is not, um, it's not a vaccine. It's not a credit card. It's not, you know, any of that. John's talking about Nero and Rome or Domitian in Rome, and Domitian was seen as a reincarnation of Nero. And this emperor worship, it's about worship of political might for security and an economic system for prosperity and provision instead of looking to God for those things, that your allegiance becomes to a, a nation, a, a government, a people, a system instead of to God. And it's a, it's a pretty challenging thing. And where do you place your allegiance in that? And there's only two groups. You either have your allegiance with God or you have your allegiance with Satan. And again, as I've spoken of previously, that's not an optional thing. It's not a, well, I choose option number three where I, you know, I'm, I sort of follow God, but I don't follow Satan. The, the reality is this, you either follow God or you follow Satan. You may describe it as anything else. You may say you're just being independent. You're you're doing what you see as best or whatever. However, you want to sleep at night with the idea doesn't change the reality that you either are following God with your life or you are following Satan. That's it. I can't simplify it more than that, nor do I think stating it that way is oversimplifying it. Those are the only two options. So on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast in his statue and the number representing his name. So these were the folks that had resisted or had turned from the beast and turned to the lamb. And it says they were holding harps that God had given them. The idea that they have harps and that God gave them those harps is, again, the imagery that God has given them peace, and it's an eternal, lasting peace. A harp is an instrument, not a weapon. And they have peace and security in God, given to them by God, and it is for eternity as they are gathered on this glassy sea, this 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 peace and purity that yes, it came through a refining fire, but here it is. And God has given him those, given them those harps again as a sign of peace and security. 
goes on in three, and they were singing. Now, this is kind of important. Whenever the book of Revelation shares with us what the angelic choruses or the saints in heaven are singing, it carries a message, and it's a powerful message. Here, they are singing the song of Moses, the servant of God. That prophet from the Old Testament represents the Old Testament covenant. And the song of the Lamb represents the new covenant. This is a joining together of the old and new covenants together. And what are they singing as they were singing the song of both Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb? That song that was true of both Old and New Testament is this. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, and just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Now, I want to look at that latter part of three and on into four a little more in depth. As we pick up in that um, latter part of chapter three, it kind of has the introduction that goes into the song. As we pick up with the song, that chorus lyrics that uh, that that heavenly course on the glassy sea is is singing out. It's that song that echoes the the Old Testament and the New Testament carries the core message of both, and that message is proclaiming the glory of God as evidenced in His works, but also proclaiming Him as Lord God the Almighty. What does that mean? That was a very much a Jewish expression of who God is, but it was also a declaration that he was the one true God, but also framing it in such a way that other nations, as they look to Israel, the other nations wouldn't say, oh, there's only one true God, and it's the God of Israel. They would look and say, okay, that's the God of Israel. We have our own gods. Who has the greater God? And that proclamation is a proclamation saying he is Lord God, the Almighty. He is God everywhere, all the time, greater than anything else you consider to be a God. He is the ultimate. He is great and marvelous. He is, O oh Lord, the Almighty. And that was a pretty powerful claim, but it was the claim which other nations understood. And it became a claim the Israelites used, and even in the New Testament, on into the New Testament, we used to proclaim God as God. Not God among many, but as God over all. It goes on, just and true are your ways, speaking of the moral character of God, but also that being in relation with God, there is a requirement upon us for that moral character, for that justice and truth. And think about this. They're described as the group that came through rejecting the beast, rejecting the mark of the beast, rejecting the world and its system to cling in allegiance to Christ. And, and people that suffered persecution 
to do that, they had to stand because they lived in a world that was not just and that did not proclaim the truth. They had to cling to the justice and truth of God, and here they are proclaiming it. And it's a message we see through the Old Testament and new again. And then, O King of the Nations. What does that mean? It means he is God. He is ruler. He is king over all. Now, that can mean he has authority over people, which it does mean, but it also all peoples, but it also means that he has authority back to this idea that each nation would see that they had their own local deity. Even, even Rome had their own particular local deities. And uh, as we get to this point in history, we're worshiping Caesar as a god. This proclamation says, oh, oh, king of the nations, you know, you're, you're king over all kings and you rule over everything. That's not just king over the human leaders of those nations. You are king over what is seen as the gods of those nations. You outrank everybody, everything, you know, not just Caesar as king, but Caesar as the people are worshiping as a, him as a god. You are king over all of that. So it's, it's really a bold declaration, and it is also, in fact, the truth. Not a popular truth in that day and age, yet a truth. And for the people reading this in that first century world, undergoing that persecution in that Roman environment, where it would very well cost them everything to proclaim the name of Christ and refuse to claim Caesar as Lord, as God, Think of how they would have read this course. And think of the encouragement found there. Verse 4. Who will not fear you, Lord? In light of his judgment, in light of his authority, his justice, the truth of who he is, who would not fear the Lord and glorify his name. And of course, the answer is no one when they're faced with who he is. We see echoes of that Old Testament as well. Um, one most striking to me is Isaiah, but there's other examples. Confronted with the holiness of God, yeah, we crumble. Our reaction is fear because we know we don't belong. We are, we are not holy. He is, and it's overwhelming to us, except through Christ because through Christ we are made holy, not by our own work, but by his. We are given his righteousness. It says, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Now, a couple of ways to see that. I think the, the probably more sensical with what we've had so far in the text and that these, these people represent people from every nation, every tribe, every peoples. I believe that was in the seven scrolls. Yeah, that was back in chapter seven um, that we had that phrase come up. Is the idea that all who see God turn to him. There are those that reject God. They face a very different fate. 
but here it seems to be speaking of those that will, in, as the redeemed, will turn to God, and all who turn to God are the redeemed, and they will, they will see God, and they will come from every nation, every tribe, every people, and they will worship God. So all nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Now, another shade of understanding on that is this. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are those that turn to God willingly, accepting his grace and mercy, that proclaim him. Those are the redeemed. But there is coming a point where all creation will acknowledge who God is. All creation will be faced with his righteous deeds that are revealed. And they will worship him. They will worship him, acknowledge him as God on the way to their destruction, on the way to their eternal separation from him, on the way to their eternal torment. They will acknowledge who he is. But for those in this life that acknowledge him, and accept Christ as Savior and Lord, there is eternal life. There is right relationship with God. It is a willing acknowledgement. Uh, so this could be understood either way. I think primarily given its context and what has led up to this point, he's talking about just there will be people from every nation that acknowledge him as God. But ultimately, yes, all will acknowledge him as God. So that's true as well. So there may be a dual meaning to this part. But that brings us to the end of verse four. Yeah, I said something about this being a short one, didn't I? Now, as we pick up in verse five, we're back to dealing with uh, the setting. We're not just talking about the saints on that that glassy sea that are they're standing out there with their harps and, and proclaiming this song from both the Song of Moses, the, the Old Covenant, Old Testament, and the Lamb, New Testament, New Covenant. It says, Then I looked and I saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. In other words, it's now open. What about that? God's tabernacle the temple in heaven being open. Temple on earth was supposed to be a reflection of the temple in heaven, uh, a reminder of pointing towards. And here we have the temple of heaven described back in the earlier chapters of the book and and the, the parallels between it and the earthly temple are just uh, in, highly intentional and very instructive for us to understand the layout and all. But then I saw the temple that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. What happened at the crucifixion? The barrier between God and man was removed. The curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the world was split from top to bottom. All separations between God's presence and his creation were cleared away in Christ. And through Christ. When I looked and saw that, that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open, 
So then I looked and saw that. Then we get to verse six, the seven angels. So we're back to the angels, the seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen. Now that's a symbol of purity. Uh, the priests, as they carried out their priestly duties and made sacrament, wore white linen robes. It, it exemplified having been made pure. Uh, so they, they represent the purity of what they are doing. You know, they're carrying plagues. They're carrying God's judgment on the earth. And this judgment is still intended for a redemptive purpose. There is still a chance to turn to God. Seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. What's the gold sash about? Ministers. Uh, I don't mean like clergy. I mean ministers, government ministers, officials that are sent as envoys and given specific tasks within government in that day and age were given a sash that was a sash of authority, a sash of, of designation for what their job or role was. So these are seven angels who are pure. They are, they are pure in the sight of God. They are, they're representatives of God's purity and holiness at work. They have been given specific tasks that they are charged with. So they were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. The one or excuse me, then one of the four living beings, remember the four creatures with the different faces and the eyes all over and the, the wings and uh, like three sets of wings and all that jazz that stand around the altar uh, in the throne room of God. It says, then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. This is God's wrath that has been held back. It is his, not his ultimate judgment at this point, but it is his judgment to be poured out on the earth for its sin. He has offered forgiveness. He has offered healing. He has offered uh, for us to be made new in his sight and to be in right relationship, to, to receive his holiness on us. But for those that have rejected up until this point, uh, the time has come and his wrath is poured out. Now, one of those four creatures that tends the altar in the throne room of God hands them a bowl filled with God's wrath. What are these bowls? Well, we can go all the way back into the, the building of the tabernacle and the instruments for worship in that. There were bowls that were fashioned out of gold that were used to pour out offerings, liquid offerings, whether it be blood that was poured out on the altar or a wine offering. Or it's, it is a, a bowl used in offerings in the worship of God. That's the earthly temple. Here we're talking the heavenly temples open, and now the angelic beings that serve in the heavenly 
temple, the throne room of God, are now using the heavenly equivalent of the bowls used for pouring out offerings in the earthly temple are given these bowls and tasked with going and pouring them out. And those bowls are filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, just to be clear who God is, is the who lives forever and ever. Then verse eight, and this wraps up the chapter. It says the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. Again, Old Testament imagery Uh, John's drawing on heavily here. God's using in the vision heavily here Uh, through the Old Testament, especially we see it starting with the Shekinah glory, that manifestation in the desert before the nation of Israel leading them in the wilderness, the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. This idea of of smoke or cloud being the, the manifestation of the glory of God. So we see that here. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. So until their task was done, even though the temple was open, none would enter because the power and glory of God manifested itself in that temple and kept everybody out. That sets the stage for what we're about to see in six, or excuse me, in 16, in chapter 16, where there's the pouring out of those bowls. And uh, we'll, we'll be dealing with that because there's so much echoing of, of plagues of Egypt and, and all in that. So we'll get to that. But hopefully you've held with me for these eight verses and we've explained it or I've explained it enough to give you an idea of the setting and how it all fits together. Um, so as we start in this third telling of God's pouring out his judgment on earth, the opportunity for repentance and the final judgment, um, we, we see that told again here, starting in 15, going through 16. Thank you for joining us. Let's turn to the Lord again as we close out our time together. And I encourage you, if reading this, you're thinking, wow, this is scary. Um, this, uh, all this God's judgment, separation from him, torment, punishment. I'm not comfortable with this at all. It scares me. I don't, I don't feel good about this. I'm uneasy. I'm, I'm not sure I'm not going to face that punishment. Then don't waste this opportunity. God's invitation to you is to know him. To know him as Savior and Lord, to turn and accept, repent from your sin and accept the forgiveness and right relationship that he offers through Christ. If you haven't done that, you can be sure you can do that now because this book isn't about terrifying people. The book of Revelation is about instilling hope and encouragement to people that God has won and he shares his victory with us if we will turn to him. But if we reject him, then he will give us what we want, an existence separate from him. But that's hell. And you don't have to go there. 
turn to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that your plan and purpose is being carried out in this, your creation. It has always been carried out. Father, that you loved us. That you came and dwelt among us. That you provided the sacrifice for our sins, that we may be made right with you. And Father, that you even give us these words of encouragement. That you give us this book of Revelation as an encouragement and a call. A call for us to live our allegiance to you and to shy away from apathy. That we would glorify you and worship you. And no matter what we face, you are still God and still victorious and we are still yours. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement of that message and for the calling forward that it places on our lives. Father, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.